Hello, welcome back to Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. Today, part two of our Four Chaplain series. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And it's just us today. Yeah, it's just the, the gruesome twosome. Yeah. We're going back to the original. The Nick and Vic show. The original model. <laughs> we are um, not models, but it's the original model. Yeah, we had to bring Will on to kind of up our... Up our intellectual game. Intellectual and just... You know, youthful vigor. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the joie de vivre. <laughs> yes, there you go. Um, it is our first episode of February, uh, so we're celebrating Black History Month. Yep. Um, we are fully booked on Fort Chaplin stuff right now, but uh, glad to see all of the uh, the support, support and uh, yeah, acknowledgement, acknowledgements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I read actually read uh, Sergeant Major Black's letter. Uh, was very good. Um, I haven't seen the commandants, but I know there's, there's something out there for sure. But um, it's good to see the support, and I, I love the sentiment of uh, not just acknowledging the history, but um, really acknowledging the the um, contribution mm-hmm. and how uh, critical uh, this. Uh, I know it's a it can be a, a hot but or a sort of a lightning rod term, but inclusion, yeah, and um, synergy, and everybody coming together and, and i mean it diversity as a commandant is stressed over and over again i mean it really is it's not just a pc term i mean it really is a foundation of what makes not just this country great but what makes us as a fighting force great because we've got that you know diversity of thought yeah yeah and being able to voice like not being afraid to talk about it is a big step too. Absolutely. Um, like if you never talk about it, you can't be challenged or affirmed. Nothing changes in life. Or it so, repeats. Yeah. Like I know with William was here, he would say, you know, history maybe doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely echoes. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge the great and the, the prickly parts. And, and so I think acknowledging and recognizing uh, Black History Month from our senior leaders is uh, is is really awesome, and and the way that they did those mm-hmm. public acknowledgments is really uh, my hats off to them. Yeah. So, but yeah, this year we are all four chaplained up, but next year might do just a special February Black History. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, just put a pin in that. That's a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we do want to plug. Uh, we're going to put drop a couple of mini pods to kind of expand the four chaplains story. Yep. Uh, throughout the month here. Um, really good. And, and, and Nick, uh, you know, I want to acknowledge your efforts on that. I really appreciate you taking a look at, uh, you know, there was such, such, such a, um, there's so much, I hate to say ripple effects on a sinking ship, but there were so many, uh, second and third order effects that came out of, uh, the, the sacrifice and the bravery of the four chaplains. And, uh, yeah, I think you did a really great job of capturing. Thank you. But those will be really short, self-contained. Um, I might try and find some pictures or video or something to put on YouTube to go with that. Nice. Uh, we'll see how. Love t- the visuals. If, if time allows, uh, plugging what else I've been working on, you can check out some old uh, dinner speakers <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, I want to plug it because, man, I spent so much time salvaging some audio yesterday for uh, General Nicholson talking about Marja and uh, Mashtarak and uh, the one right before it. Um, was it Sharif? That one? Oh, it starts with a K. Oh, Kandahar. Kandahar. Yeah. No. no. Is that what it is? 
Kandahar's the location, right? Or yeah. Is that, is, no, the operation right before. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, God, I, I never I wrote it out a thousand names. times yesterday, and I can't remember it. Now it's committed to podcast history. <laughs> Future Nick here was Operation Kanjar, or Strike of the Sword. Uh, but yeah, no, check that out. It's an excellent snapshot of what happened, of what the Marine sentiment was in 2010. Yeah. Right after uh, Marja, right after the, the whole right, the surge. surge. Mm-hmm. So, and it's interesting looking at it from 12 years later. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, having talked to, you know, when I went uh, in 11 and 12, there were folks that were on their second time after the surge. And so hearing some of the stories of like, especially like Dwyer, which was just like this little outpost that the Brits held as they just got shelled and rocketed like on a hourly basis and just how the Marines then had to like bleed out and mm. start take retaking ground. It, it, it's, it's really, it's a really great, uh, it's a great story and very tragic at times, but also so much, yeah. Yeah, and I'm Valor hoping, there. Yeah, and I'm hoping as we go through the scuttlebutt, we've we've kind of started building out the uh, the story of Afghanistan with uh, Tom Schumann, Miles Vining. Um, Talk about the Will, refugees, yeah. Will Schick. So working with the um, yeah, we're embedded with the Afghan uh, police. Mm-hmm. So really excited about what we're doing. Uh, hoping to get some experts on over the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and the Jeff Stoltz interview. Um, oh, yeah. Having uh, yeah, 12 strong. 12 strong, yeah. So, um, so kind of trying to help tell that story. Yeah, uh, from the many, many aspects yeah, of it. Yeah. Com- committing it to celluloid, as you will. <laughs> um, but today we have Rear Admiral Baker. Yeah. Rear Admiral Alan T. Baker, otherwise known as Blues Baker, Blues because Baker. he plays blues harmonica. And if there wasn't a better way to get a nickname, huh? <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, but yeah, this was a great interview. This was a real treat um, for me. Uh, he obviously of uh, 16th Commandant or 16th <laughs> Chaplain <laughs> of the Marine Corps, um, and that alone, you know, my fanboy nature was just like, ah, you know, like total rock star but just his level of humility but then at the same time his wisdom um and uh just his, the way he carried himself the way he spoke passionately about the yeah. chaplaincy so effortlessly too yeah yeah right. i mean here's the guy who started as a as a you know as a naval warrior surface warfare fleet left active duty to become to get his uh, uh his uh, uh mdiv his master in divinity and then became a chaplain, got his doctorate mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, divinity, um, and yeah, just at the highest levels of at least from the green side, the chaplain corps. But then just the the fact that he has still not lost that sight that like the fight for a chaplain is in the trenches. Like it's mm-hmm. not in the office, it's not from the pulpit. And I love his the way he spoke about the hub and wheel. Yeah, and, and the office is his boots. Yeah, that yeah. was yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, hey, where's my office? Where yeah. are they? Like, dude, you're wearing them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, um, yeah, taking off his marksman badges. Yeah, like, there's a lot of there's so much good and, stuff. And he in was here. so he was so candid about to his the struggles he had. Mm-hmm. You know, especially had you know the, the badges was a good one. You know, he still had that sort of warrior mindset. 
Um, but then also too, like in trying to be helpful, he lost sight too mm-hmm. of some of the more holistic stuff, like his story about the baptism. Yeah. Uh, the- <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I give the spo- ah, That was the punchline, guys. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but tune in. It's it's even yeah. better when he tells it. Um. So, uh, strategic foundation yeah. of chaplaincy. So now yeah. he's out. Obviously, he's retired, um, and he's uh, living in California. He's a uh, adjunct professor at I think Fuller Seminary. I think he's also contributes at the Naval Academy. He's also um, here at Wesley Theological Seminary, which we'll have a, a, a I think a third episode. Uh, we'd speak to the director of that program. Um, so he's still keeping that mindset of his office. He's wearing his office. Mm-hmm. His office, you know, his 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 black Cadillacs or where his pulpit is. Um, but he also has this other foundation, um, Strategic Foundations Chaplaincy, um, a really great endeavor. Uh, he's the co-founder, and they are looking to intersect um, leadership, faith, and learning, um, and coaching. They mentor organizations on how they can intersect all these things so that they are not just providing a service as far as a business is concerned, but they, that service is also being provided for the members of the organization. And, and so that, um, you know, by coming together uh, and having that shared vision, they can then move forward. And, and uh, it, just, it just strengthens the organization, strengthens the product, it strengthens just uh, us, us coming together. I think it really is sort of a, a microcosm of what chaplains do, mm-hmm. and that is, being that glue that binds at the organizational level and just always being a resource for whoever needs resource absolutely for sure and um i did just want to mention also um today uh we are recording on for chaplain's day um and so uh there's lots of publications um about all of the togetherness and coming together uh and in in sort of um using the sacrificial model that the four chaplains gave us on uh, February 3rd and then taking that and having it be something that brings us all together and, and shows us that hope is real and that we are more uh, than what our day-to-day sort of the, the drudgery of day-to-day mm-hmm. wants us to or leads yeah. us to believe we are. So. Um, and forgive me, I did not write down the name of the Rear Admiral's book, but he literally just wrote the book it's on called chaplaincy. Foundations of Chaplaincy. There you go. We talk about it. Uh, it's a wonderful read. Even if you're not interested, I mean, if you're interested in chaplaincy, you got to check out the book. Uh, uh, even for me, reading it in preparation for the interview was, uh, I mean, there's light bulbs going on. I mean, it was like a, a you know, it was like a like a Christmas tree turning on in my head. I mean, there were so many. Um, life hacks in there, but then f- for sure, if you're thinking about chaplaincy or you're just curious about chaplaincy, you got to pick up Foundation of Chaplaincy. It's it's a wonderful book. It's an easy read, um, and uh, yeah, it it just there's a lot to learn there. All right. Well, without further ado, um, I believe this was actually recorded right before Christmas. So yes, let's go back to uh, the past, Vic. Yeah, you go Rear sixty Admiral days. Baker, <laughs> and uh, Four chaplains. Enjoy it. 
The SS Dorchester, a civilian liner converted for military service, left New York on January 23, 1943, en route to Greenland, carrying approximately 900 personnel and crew. It was part of a convoy of three ships escorted by Coast Guard cutters Tampa, Escanaba, and Comanche. During the early morning hours of February 3rd, off Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, the vessel was torpedoed by the German submarine U-223. Chaplains George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington helped the men board lifeboats and gave up their own life jackets when the supply ran out. The chaplains joined arms, said prayers, and sang hymns as they went down with the ship. I am so honored and privileged and humbled right now to be here with Rear Admiral Alan T. Bluesbaker, the uh, 16th Chaplain of the Marine Corps. Sir, thank you so much for being here today. I'm delighted, Vic. Thank you for bringing me into your podcast and look forward to having a conversation. Yeah, me too. This is extremely exciting to me. Um, we'll delve into your book. Um, foundations and chaplaincy. I know for our listeners, there's no video, but as you can see, sir, I got tabbed away. So this uh, this is gonna be great to unpack a little bit of this. And but before we jump into your book, sir, I know uh, in the uh, show portion we uh, detailed a little bit of your career. But if you wouldn't mind, for those who uh, don't know you or maybe only familiar with you in the civilian sector, could you? kind of talk us through your your journey through the Marine Corps and through your faith and, you know, be as detailed or as uh, brief as you want, but so the floor is yours. Hey, uh, thanks, Vic. And Scuttlebutt listeners, I certainly don't want to uh, to have you turn down the volume on this, so I'll keep it short uh, if I can. <laughs> uh, this is an exercise uh, for me, right? I came into the military service at age 18, and I went to the Naval Academy. And it was uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, it was outside the state I grew up in, California. Unbeknownst to me, it was way on the other side. Didn't know much about the Naval Academy or Annapolis. Showed up there. It was a hot summer day. I've discovered humidity for the first time. <laughs> Went through what they call plebe summer, which is just the equivalent of basic training for the uh, Naval Academy's plebe year. And it was really challenging. Uh, my the yearbook says, I arrived. I look or I looked around. I I didn't like it and I stayed. So uh, come figure that out. You know, it's one of these uh, opportunities where you spend the first two years at the academy with an opportunity to walk out anytime, and they don't want you if you're not fully committed. And they give you two years to kind of get centered in. Uh, the military context. They really want you for, uh, uh, well, it's a five-year commitment afterward, but they want to see if you're going to be sustainable like through a career. So at the end of two years, I stayed and I actually began liking more about it, especially senior year when you're kind of on top of the world. And <laughs> I ended up going surface warfare, which was uh, in the Navy. It's the ship driver piece. And uh, while I was uh, went to my first ship, it was a, a frigate out of San Diego. And I really had not grown into a active faith in my life. God was some idea, some concept, something that I could maybe uh, reach out to sometime before I died, but not now. I had other plans and 
realized after I got married to my dear wife now of uh, almost 42 years, uh, it was a tough first year, Vic. And I didn't have the, I didn't have the relational skills. I didn't have the, the social skills to really carry that marriage and, and desperation, this gift of desperation. I, I went to God and I said, I can't do this. I do not know what I'm doing, but whatever it's been up to this point, it's not working. And sure enough, a Navy chaplain showed up who, by the way, was a uh, Marine Corps A-6 bombardier navigator in Vietnam with 100 combat missions. Wow. Went to be a chaplain. And now he's on a ship. So here's a former Marine Corps officer aviator who's now a Navy chaplain who's talking to this ensign, Lieutenant Junior Grade on a ship, on how to how to keep his marriage alive. And anyway... I'll cycle through really quick. Uh, Faith found me. Uh, I just fell head over heels in my understanding of uh, of God and grew immensely through that chaplain and had a couple more tours, one more tour back uh, teaching at the academy and was convinced at that time that my purpose my vision for my life at that point was to stay in the military, but focus on the people executing the mission all the time, because everybody's executing mission in the military. Everybody. But who is that one agent, that one uh, chartered by the institution to care for those people who are executing the mission? And that's the chaplain. And that was a very clear call for my life. So I resigned my commission, went to seminary, got uh, hired back in as a chaplain. I, I was an O3 for 11 years, not an O3 infantry, but an O3 uh, <laughs> Navy, Navy LT. And uh, it was because I, I left active service as a, as a warrior and came back in as a chaplain and never regretted that at all. And then had a number of tours, uh, including uh, combat operations in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, served in the Navy combat areas of Operation Earnest Will, uh, and then was uh, part of the Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom later on in my career. Cycled through uh, Marine Corps, uh, spent 210 days in the field in, uh, in uh, Southwest Asia, and um, had some of the best ministry opportunities I ever had with the Marines out there, and then served again as the 16th chaplain of the Marine Corps with a, a number of Navy uh, tours in between there. That is, uh, that's quite a path, sir. Um, and I love that you're, you loved the 11 years as an 03. Um, I got to imagine that is probably fulfilling on a large scale that, uh, your, you know, more senior billets may have been spending that much time in the ground, in the trenches, um, had to have been, you know, a blue side or green side had to have been really where, you know, faith is meeting the people who need faith. So true, because, um, you know, uh, uh, I'll go like the, the Mark One Mod Zero Sailor, uh, the the Marine feels a lot more comfortable going to a chaplain who's an 03 and not a chaplain who's an 06. A little more intimidation, a little more distance, a little more age. Um, so I found that being the O3 and for those of you listeners and scuttlebutt who, uh, 
who, who may be O3s or, or senior to O3s know that that's the most fun pay grade because mm-hmm. you get all the fun and really nobody quite trusts you with the car keys yet. So you're steering, but somebody else has the keys and that's just a lot of fun. So those, those are great years. Love them. Absolutely. So yeah, if I had, if I could have uh, frozen my company command time, if I could just stayed there for 20 years, I would have, it would have been the most fulfilling career ever. So I, so, I so agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, sir, your book, um, Foundations of Chaplaincy, a practical guide, and and really that subtitle, practical guide, is uh, is so relevant to to what this is. Um, obviously, there's much acclaim to this book, and you know, as we talk, sir, you know, I, myself having been a battalion executive officer, uh, I really feel like this book resonated on a lot of levels outside of just uh, a faith based organization. Um, it's something I wish a tool I wish I had had in my kit as you know chief of staff of a battalion. Um, so I really think that that's relevant to commanders, executive officers, chiefs of staff. Um, this is going to sound like a pretty ignorant question, but being that the chaplain corps is one of the oldest corps in military in American military history, how is it just now in 2021 is a book like this now coming out and hitting the shelves? Oh, Vic, that's a great question, and I wish uh, I wish I could say that this was the first book ever written on chaplaincy. It does seem that uh, there's generations of books that come and go, and there's a book that was written in the 70s called "The Churches and the Chaplaincy" by a chaplain Hutchison, which was an absolute masterpiece for the time. And then uh, in the early 2000s, um, Jan McCormick wrote a book called "The Work of the Chaplain." which became kind of the uh, classroom resource reference. And I talked to her uh, in, as part of this, she's quoted in, in, uh, in the Foundations of Chaplaincy book because I thought it would be appropriate for uh, you know, the, the 2020s, 2030s period, the, the epic that we're in now to try to bring some of the um, evolution of chaplaincy, the maturity of the institution, the integration of chaplaincy is a, a staff core that's also a principal advisor to commanders. And what you said earlier about, uh, you know, your time is an XO chief of staff, that piece, I think resonates with me because part of the reason, part of the reason this book was written was to try to target leadership, not only just prospective chaplains or current chaplains, but also those entrusted with chaplains. So you could better understand what's causing them to be motivated the way they are, the way they tick, the way they will provide for not only your people, but also for your command as a whole, if that makes sense. Absolutely, sir. I mean, um, you know, there's always, we always understood that the chaplain's a key advisor, obviously has direct line of communications to the commander, but it's so easy, um, as you said earlier, so, so you're so focused on that mission accomplishment and, uh, you know, supporting the mission, supporting the Marines or sailors who are in, you know, executing that mission, that we sort of forget that they're not cogs in a machine. <laughs> like, these are people, the, their environment uh, affects them, their peers affect them, their superior, you know, the senior leaders affect them, uh, what's going on outside of the military affects them. And we really are so focused on mission that sometimes we lose that pulse. 
And I really feel like uh, there are, we wonder what's going on with the Marines, but then don't go down to the chaplain and say, hey, what's going on with the Marines? I served on an aircraft carrier, uh, the Harry S. Truman, and the commanding officer, We every morning at, at 0800 underway, would gather, uh, we'd gather around his bridge chair, the executive officer, the command master chief, and, and me as the, the senior chaplain. And he'd ask one question every day, how's the tone of the ship? And we would all offer our perspectives from our view vantage points. And I saw that as being valuable for him to get a sense of tone. What is command tone? How do you distill that? That is not a policy or regulation. It's not a doctrinal thing. Hmm. It's, it's very, uh, to use the word existential, because it changes. Yeah, mm -hmm. Liberty Port gets canceled. What's the tone of the ship? Uh, aircraft uh, doesn't return. What's that tone of the ship? What's going on here? So uh, I know this wouldn't be uh, in policy anywhere, but I do think that chaplaincy in the military in any institution can and could be, and hopefully should be, uh, the WD-40 kind of working through the system as it works. It doesn't, it doesn't change the mission. It supports the people who are executing that mission. And it's chartered by the very institution itself to say, we want this person to have a role that is distinct from, from others, but completely focused on others and, and not focused other places if that makes sense. Absolutely, sir. And you would reference that um, as you were talking through uh, your just wonderful detailing of the roles and responsibilities and, and for lack of a better term, the foundations of what it means to be a chaplain. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really, uh, that really resonated with me is, is that the people in the organization are gonna care less about your religious affiliation and more about how professional you are in being someone that cares about other people. And so it's almost like a revolving door or like a symbiotic relationship that regardless of whether you're, uh, you know, evangelical or Catholic or uh, Jewish or uh, uh, Imam, if you, if the Marines and sailors understand that your profession is caring and that you care about that profession. I think that that opens up. Do you agree with that, sir? I do, because I think, uh, let me go at it a couple different ways. One, one is that a chaplain should be an example in bearing, military bearing to the organization. Not that the chaplain is the, uh, you know, the hat on the drill field, but the chaplain is someone who people look up to for many reasons. Uh, that chaplain is a commissioned officer. That chaplain is a religious cleric. That chaplain has the right, you know, the right ear of the commanding officer. That chaplain is someone who's eating our same chow and sleeping in our same uh, field situation. So because of that, the chaplain needs to have a, a, a standard for bearing that that is uh, exemplar of the institution. So no, I do not think chaplains should wear, uh, you know, unpolished boots. If, 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 if everyone else has polished boots, you know, the chaplain who exempts herself or himself 
from organizational norms is, is at risk of losing credibility and becoming uh, an appendage to the organization and not organic with the organization, if that makes sense. You were detailing the roles and responsibilities in the book and the, and the foundations of chaplaincy, the, the, thus the title. Um, and through all of the challenges that one may face, I feel like the Marines and sailors are going to be more receptive to the chaplain and, and allow the chaplain to do that, his key roles and responsibilities if he is a professional at caring and that the soldiers and sailors and Marines are seeing that professionalism in the application of that care. Mm -hmm. Do you mind expounding upon that a little bit? Yeah. So the, uh, I, I will, at the risk of um, simplifying and uh, reductionism, but let me give you two, 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 uh, two types of chaplains. Cause I, I actually was the company commander of chaplain basic course years ago. Wow. So every new chaplain came through and, you know, it was typically a clergy person who was a civilian who needed uh, at least four weeks of orientation, more than that, actually, to what the military was. So port starboard, bulkhead, overhead, deck, <laughs> you know, basic, basic yes, fundamental attributes of our, of our lingo. Um, and then four weeks of that was followed by adaptation of their skills to the military, not necessarily changing their skills, but helping them adapt what they knew to this new environment and to the people that they'd serve. There was another type of chaplain, again, at the risk of simplification, were those like me who came from the military back into the military chaplaincy. And oftentimes, regrettably, they would carry like some baggage with them of trying to figure out whether they're still a, uh, a line officer, an infantry officer, a surface warfare officer, or whether they were a chaplain. So their, their issue wasn't so much uh, orientation of the military. It was more orientation to being a chaplain in the military. So, you know, they didn't arrive at their organization and become something other than a chaplain. The, the sailors and the Marines, um, they don't need another executive officer. They need a chaplain. So how do you then become a chaplain? Maintaining high standards, uh, but being invitational and not impositional in who you are. Making sure you never ask for something because somebody's going to do what you ask because mm. you are in a position of authority, even though you may not think you have that authority. So be cautious. Otherwise, people will go to extremes. I was at uh, Air Base, Sheikh Isa bin Salman al Khalifa. The year was 1990. We were having chapel services in a tent in the desert, a huge dining tent. It was the only place we could gather. They called it the Kami Cathedral. It was so large. It was draped with camouflage netting. We were not allowed to fly the typical chapel flag, which is a, uh, a blue flag with a white cross for a Christian chapel or white tablets for a Jewish chapel. The host nation would not allow us to do that. We went to the parachute riggers and said, what would it be if you could design a chapel flag for us? And the parachute riggers came back and they had designed a green triangular flag with a yellow fish that we flew high above this tent. And the yellow fish for those who came uh, from 
you know, a Christian background would see that the fish had this Christian symbology. And those who didn't, it was a restaurant, maybe. We didn't know. <laughs> so we would have services there. And once one day, um, we were going to have uh, something like 10 baptisms of Marines. And it was exciting. And we were thrilled. And I had no idea where to get the water. So I was pining away like, oh, that we could have water to do a baptism with. And one of our sergeants said, I've got it, sir. I'm like, you do? He said, don't think another word. You can just do what you need to do. And halfway through the service, I heard a forklift arriving with a large, very large 500-gallon bladder of water pouring from the water truck that came up to pour it and fill it with baptismal water. And we had a great, great baptismal service. And I think there were more people who wanted baptisms because no one had had a shower for a long time. <laughs> Only to get the call from the colonel saying, Chaplain, do you know what happened to our drinking water? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. This can't have happened. So sure enough, be careful what you ask for. Um, you know, be good stewards of what is entrusted to you because uh, if you, you know, you could easily exceed what you really want, if that makes sense. No, that's a, that's a great anecdote, but um, yeah, it is a, a very, uh, that resonates. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I, I had a buddy, um, he was prior enlisted and he was a drill instructor. And so on his, when his first period of instruction was just how to shave your face. And so he tells the recruits, you got to take all the hair off your face, shave all the hair off your face. And so as he's inspecting them coming out of the head, he starts to notice that there's something a little different with all of these recruits. And what they've done is they've taken all, they have no eyebrows. They've taken all of the hair completely off of their faces. And so now he's under sort of a pseudo, because his senior drill instructor is like, this can be seen as hazing. Yeah. And so he gets his first lesson in careful what you tell them because they're going to do it. Um, I bet he got a nickname out of that one. I'm sure he did. <laughs> yeah, actually, he ended up going to University of San Diego. So, uh, yeah, another another local Cali guy. Um, but, yeah, that that's and so what are lessons like that? So I think you had mentioned um, some of the challenges that former service members, especially probably at the combat arms level, have when they come back into the military service because they've already – have, like you said, some preconceived notions or even some baggage that they're bringing with them back in uniform. What can your book say to those who are maybe going into other organizations? So for your civilians who are coming in to uh, the military organizations or former military members who are maybe now are going to be police chaplains, um, is that uh, is that sort of a, a you've got to do some discovery learning or does your book speak to that as well? I think every it's it's really on the organization to determine at what level do they want to orient their chaplain or other employees as they take them in. The military has great orientation schools for chaplains. Every service branch has a orientation school, and it it, it it's actually you know over seven weeks. Some of them are longer than that, and the goal there is to realize that if they're not, no matter if they're equipped. Uh, they're not equipped for that particular role. And mm. so how do they get into that role? So um, 
hospitals would have yes. their orientation programs or certification programs. So there's a professionalization of chaplaincy for many different kinds of chaplaincy, of which the military, I think, has the it's the most enduring, it's the longest, it's the most sophisticated. And I think to a degree, when you're on the battlefield, obviously the most critical. Because yeah. if you have uh, chaplains that haven't had that opportunity to prepare themselves for that kind of experience, they're not going to be uh, worth their, you know, worth their salt when they're out there. You know, <laughs> I, I, I have another anecdote. I, I was on a, a cruiser going into the Persian Gulf for the first time in 1987, and the U.S. government was supporting this thing called Operation Earnest Will, which was to protect the reflag Kuwaiti tankers that were going up and down the Persian Gulf. And our cruiser was one of the forward missile cruisers that were that was defending these tankers. And daily we would have, um, they were uh, Iraqi uh, Mirage jets that had Exocet missiles that would fire mm. uh, at these targets. And we'd have to interdict and prevent them from doing that the best we could. And it was pretty threatening. And heading toward the Strait or Hormuz, we were listening on a chatterbox to uh, uh, one of the, um, it was a oil tower that was being raided by some of our people, by some of our uh, special operations people. And we were listening to a live circuit and it was very tactical, very scary, very, you know, I mean, you're, you're in real, you know, live rounds going off and people getting injured. And I went down in the ship to my stateroom and just wrote the last letter home saying, mm. I don't know what's going to happen here. We don't know. Nobody knows, but I, I think every sailor, every officer should do this. Don't know if they will, but I need to do this. I, I need to prepare myself in a way that would do a, a moral will. And that wasn't my own idea. I got it from chaplain school, a chaplain there, a senior chaplain had told me to do this before you get into a situation. And, um, and I did that and it took me a, you know an hour, hour and a half. And I, I was completely emotionally drained by that. The outcome was that I was then prepared to start working with the sailors and the officers as they were now moving into that same space. So, yeah, I think, you know, similar to um, in the Christian tradition, you distribute uh, communion. You say, I, I, I'm only giving you what I've received. Um, chaplaincy in that environment is I'm, I'm giving you what I've received. I've gone through that valley of, of death or at least considered that could be me. And I want to make sure that I'm here now with you. That's profound, sir. I think that that's kind of a life hack, but um, absolutely. I think that there's a lot, especially for the chaplain corps, uh, something like that. Um, well, you know, speaking of all of your experiences throughout your uh, time with the blue green team, um, you've obviously seen, seen bill descriptions, fitness reports, evaluation that span the, gamut of tasks that would be explicit to a unit or a ship's ca uh, chaplain. Um, what aspects of your book speak directly to those responsibilities and what are more geared towards uh, mentorship and um, like you said, sort of those intangibles of being there and bringing your experiences to them so that they can then uh, be the fullest uh, soldier, sailor, marine that they can be. Sure, great question, Vic. I, I would say that the the uh, 
the book is intentionally broken up, uh, interspersed with story narratives. Um, you know, if you'd look at every other page or so, you're going to get kind of a, a, a narrative block in there to try to say, hey, this is some real life application of what is trying to be taught here. So that it, that's complete narrative. That's complete. Um, I'm I'm not giving you a fish. I'm showing you how to fish here, kind of. And and it's not just um, some of those stories are mine, but most of those stories come from chaplains and their experience. And because of uh, the network that I'm entrusted with, with knowing, you know, I've I'm, I'm been in the chaplaincy profession for a while. I, I have a lot of people who have a lot of great experiences, and bringing their experiences into this book uh, to me. It, uh, brings credibility to uh, the, here's a fish by saying, um, you know, here's how to fish in that mm -hmm. as well. So there's, I think the practical application is um, for those who aren't going to be chaplains for you as a leader of Marines, as a, uh, you know, as a senior officer, you're not going to be a chaplain, but you need to know what a chaplain does and what's in the chaplain's head. And actually, you know, how can the chaplain not only help my unit, but how can the chaplain help me? And for the chaplain, this book is actually giving them hopefully the tools to say, here's how to fish. And there's uh, your your stories are just as valuable as any story in here. And oh, by the way, um, we're all going to make those mistakes. And it's through the mistakes of others I want to learn from. I don't want to necessarily learn from my mistakes. Right. I do, but, you know, let's share those stories and be collaborative and say, you know, we, we disguise the stakes with... Uh, uh, best lessons or lessons learned or best practices because there was at one time the worst practice, right? So uh, I want to, I want to know what that one is and I don't want to repeat that and let's grow from each other. If that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I, I really, I did take a lot away uh, from reading your book about having that diversity of experience. And like you said, giving it that authority to speak about these things is not just, you know, um, interesting mind experiments but that this is things that people have actually lived and here is their account of those things especially from the hop hospital chaplaincy uh perspective because there is just so much uh lament and sorrow and uh you know people really at sort of the breaking point in their faith and the chaplain just being there with them um so i think your your book does a great job of simultaneously giving the fish but then also teaching how to fish so that um, it's not just a, uh, you know, it's not an echo of the same mistakes that people are making over and over again. When I was working as the 16th chaplain of the Marine Corps, which was uh, amazing, amazingly um, diverse position, part of, part of the position it allowed me to go over to uh, Bethesda, Walter Reed, to meet our wounded warriors, our, our wounded that had just come back from Usually, um, lunch duel, Ramstein, uh, you know, they'd be combat evacuated and brought in. And I would always go there thinking, well, you know, I'll pass out, uh, you know, the chaplain, chaplain of the Marine Corps coin, uh, you know, or, or something along those lines and say a prayer with them and try to bring encouragement to them. And I never sensed that that's really what I did. I went in there. And they would tell me about 
their buddies they had to leave behind mm. and how even though their body was broken, their heart was still there and how they're thinking every day about their mission and about bringing their buddies back and how they felt lost because they weren't on the front line anymore. And that is, that is an experience that you, you could do a one-off, but you're going to room after room after room and you're hearing that story again and again, you're realizing that there is a passion in the military for our, for our left and our right, our, you know, the rifleman to your left, the rifleman to your right, your wingman. Um, And how does a chaplain enter that in a sacred space? That is a sacred space and offer words of first. I don't, I, I don't know whether I was offering them hope. I was thanking them for their commitment and their resolution. And, and in the midst of their ad, you know, their adversity at the time, to say, um, I believe God is present with you. And if I'm any part of a wedge of that huge testimony, then, then, then I think I've done everything I can do. But I think, you know, if it be possible, um, I hope I see you again and get together. But those were really interesting times. And you brought up the hospital ministry. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big ministry. And then the staff, you know, the staff has to, they're dealing with that all the yeah. time and don't have all the outlets that the spiritual outlets that chaplains have. And, and so, so do you, do you think then where, uh, you know, cause I, if I understand, uh, the progression of the chaplaincy uh, of a chaplain correctly, an active duty chaplain needs to have two years of civilian ministry under their belt. Yes. So do you, then do you find that, because they co- they're coming from sort of a building centered model. You, you talked about um, the the wheel model, the 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 hub and the wheel, and how the build the building centered model is everybody is sort of coming to you. You're you're in the church, you're in the building, everyone's coming to you, and and you've provided this safe space, but there's a there's a level of comfort for you maybe not necessarily for them, whereas the chaplain model is the exact opposite. You're going out. And so is that a hard transition for young chaplains, junior chaplains to get that where in one for two years, their affiliation and their building maybe was the most important thing or their reputation as being the chaplain or the pastor of this building was the most important thing. Now, the most important thing is them getting out regardless of affiliation and regardless of now they're out of their comfort zone going into other people's comfort zone. Is that a challenge? Vic, that's a great question. And, and consider the fact that uh, someone who senses a calling to vocational ministry typically goes through a discernment period with their faith group, typically then goes to a seminary or Bible college, typically then must be ordained or licensed for ministry almost every model I know of is focused on a pulpit in a church ministry model. So even seminaries are prepping them for loquacious homiletics, preaching, (laughs) teaching the idea of that hub and spoke model, the wagon wheel where the center axis, that hub is everybody's traveling down those spokes once a week on that special day to, to listen to receive 
whether it's sacraments or proclamation, and then and then the church sends them out of the building into the community. And suddenly they're a chaplain. And guess what? Chaplaincy is not hub focus, it's rim focus. It's the rim. So everybody's on the rim. So whereas in the parish, let's say there's the, the Sunday morning service, everybody's sent into the community after that. And then we'll see you all next Sunday or maybe Wednesday if there's a, some kind of a meeting. But chaplaincy is on the rim Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the transition for anybody who's lived in the parish idea. So it's uh, there's two things I'll point out. One is, yeah, it is hard. So part of the orientation is to say you're now in a place where you don't have your own church parking spot. You know, your synagogue is not going to offer uh, you a special door to go into. You you are actually part of an organization and you're not the boss anymore. You know, you have a commanding officer. So so this is going to have to take some time to get over. Uh, And then, um, you know, the second thing is uh, they've got to be able to take that. They've got to take all that experience, what what we call their um, their pastoral identity because the church has given them that, the synagogue has given them that, whatever organization that has ordained them has given them that pastoral identity. We need that in the military, but we need it in the context of the military, Mm. not in the context of the local church. So that's why the two-year requirement is there, because the risk is bringing people into military chaplaincy who don't have any pastoral identity. And you know what they end up doing? they end up identifying with whatever looks good to them at the time. And Mm -hmm. so they're not an anchor of faith stability. They become, uh, you know, too easily moved by the breeze of the time. And so we don't want that. We want people with a strong pastoral identity. So that's why the two, the two years is required. That's fascinating. I didn't really even thought about that, but yeah, because especially in the military, the organization is such a juggernaut. Um, that it would be really easy to, um, in order to adapt, is to adopt that culture vice, having that foundation that you mentioned. One example I'll throw out is uh, there was a priest who uh, the Marines loved, and he, instead of saying the amen, he would have the Marines do the ura. (laughs) That worked great until his bishop came. And his bishop heard that and his bishop said, hey, look, you know, I love the fact that Marines are Marines and they're warriors. But in the context of a mass chaplain, uh, please use the liturgy. And so there was a rub there. That was the collision, right, of the institutions, the two institutions of the religious institution and the military institution. And the chaplain, as far as I know, acquiesced to the bishop. But you know, I'm sure there were a few Marines that may have continued to say, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, well, that that's really interesting. And so this, I'm sort of jumping a little bit ahead. Um, I, I definitely want to loop back to your book, but as far as, well, I guess you're, in your book, you do mention that the, the two organizations, whether it's a hospital, whether it's the military, whether it's a police and fire rescue team even, um, that there is an overlap, that there is, and there could be potential tensions. Um, 
generally speaking, do you find that that overlap is nice and neat, or is there are there some rough patches that a uh, pastor is going to, or a pastor becoming a chaplain or a uh, seminarian who, who is becoming a, a chaplain is going to have to navigate? In answer to your question, I would say that the tension that you talk about that could be there actually should be there. I mm. think the tension should be there. If there is no tension for a chaplain, then something may be, that, that to me is an indicator that something may be wrong. Mm. Either you are too far inculcated into one organization or the other, and you're too comfortable. The chaplain is the one person not only chartered by the institution to care for the people, but the chaplain's the one person chartered by the institution to hold two identities. You know, the institutional identity of the military and the institutional identity of the faith group that they are endorsed, ecclesiastically endorsed by. So I would say that sometimes the tension is stronger. Sometimes it's really hard. I, I belong in a faith group um, that did not support, that publicly did not support the war that I am currently in serving Marines in combat. Yeah, yeah. What do I do with this, Right. What what were they thinking? Um, you know, the, the institutional church bureaucrats had no idea that I was serving in combat with Marines in the very uh, in the very war that they're saying no, we shouldn't be involved in. And I'm thinking, I I have tension. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's I, tense. There's tension there. I, I'm I, I'm going to do my job. My job is here. Until I'm called out of here, I will serve Marines. The church did not call me out. Uh, the church obviously had exceptions to their policy or whatever. They had a standard that they wanted to have, you know, we, we want peace everywhere. Uh, I, think, I think warriors want peace as well. I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I would pray with Marines in battle, I would pray that lives would be saved on both sides, that there was a need in the warrior's heart to actually have peace, that there was uh, there were families on both sides that desperately wanted their warriors home, and that if there was any way for us to uh, to move quickly through this battle, through this war, that it would be in a way that would bring everyone home. And I thought that was kind of weird because I, I read about chaplains in Vietnam who'd like, you know, let's, let's kill. Well, I don't know if that's true. Right. Let's, let's, but you know, like, let's get, let's, let's, let's go out there and really nail them. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that's my role. I, I mean, if that's the Sergeant Major's role or the Master Gunny's role or somebody else's role, but it shouldn't be, it couldn't be my role. I'm, I'm going to be the one person who is saying life all of life is valued and we will do our best to do our mission and stay within the rules of engagement. And, um, you know, the, the rule of law, the, and, and the, the law of war. And so, um, that was, that was really important at the time and still remains important to me. Yeah. And I think it's important that it's said, I think that, um, you know, like you said, so there are plenty who are going to beat the drum um, but I think it speaks to that professionalism of caring that we were talking about earlier, that if you blur that, 
and you aren't in line with your the your faith group's tenets, your basic tenets, then yeah, you're going to lose some legitimacy with the the troops, sailors, and marines that you're with. So, I think that's important. Chaplains are non-combatants, and because of that, there's a purpose for that. Uh, not that they're poor aims, you know. Not that they <laughs> couldn't be marksmen or sharpshooters. I um, I learned this lesson. I went to chaplain school as a uh, kind of a military retread, right? I'd already been in. I now uh, a brand new lieutenant after being a, a line officer lieutenant, and now I'm a chaplain lieutenant. And I didn't have that many uh, wards on my chest from my time as a surface warfare officer. And I had a gunny who was my hat at chaplain school. And he came up and looked at my uniform and he said, I notice you have uh, two expert pistol rifle ribbons on your uniform. I said, yes, Gunny, I do. He said, well, that means that as a non-combatant, you can fire a weapon. I said, that sounds like a mixed signal to me, Gunny. He said, and furthermore, if you're that good, you don't need me to, to cover for you. And I said, I hear you loud and clear, Gunny. And I took those off and I didn't wear those again because mm -hmm. I didn't want to communicate the fact that even though I had been a, you know, a, a warrior in the past that I was still aware. I thought it was a mixed signal. And I, I know there's plenty of chaplains that, that, that might be former that wear those. And I don't want to tell them they live the way they want to, but I can tell you, it, it could be perceived as sending a mixed signal, if that makes sense. That absolutely does. And that is an aspect that I hadn't, hadn't even thought about. That's, that's, that's fascinating. So then what then, as, and we're, as we're talking about deployment, we're talking about, um, roles is there a process in chaplain school or even in the selection of chaplains where a chaplain because one of the responsibilities of the chaplain is to and and, and you mentioned that we pray for all life the part of the role of the chaplain is to make that interfaith um create an interfaith dialogue with the enemy's spiritual leaders with their uh, you know, the, the, the folks that they turn to for spirituality and to make those links and to find that place where maybe, um, you know, we can come together spiritually, even if we can't necessarily come together ideologically. Is there a, is there a process that picks those chaplains and say, hey, this, you know, RCT5 is getting ready to go out. This chaplain here is amazing or has a background in interfaith communication let's attach him there or is this sort of an ojt thing for chaplains as they go from maybe the blue side to the green side or from a parish to a, a combat unit it's it, there's two ways to do this as far as growing into a, a bigger world of faith expression because typically chaplains come out of a seminary or a faith group which tends to be narrowly focused mm -hmm. on their own faith tradition and on their own execution of ministry, whether it be, you know, homiletics or some kind of uh, liturgical sacramental services. And they go into the, the military chaplaincy and it's, it's huge, right? You've got, you've got people who might identify with your faith. You've got lots of people who have faith, but not your own. You've mm -hmm. got tons of people who just don't have any faith and that's fine for them. And it should be fine for the chaplain. The chaplain's not trying to uh, execute their faith group goals on that population. The chaplain's to be supporting where they're at. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, it diversifies the chaplain. And then there are certain programs that the chaplain course have to study religion and culture, to grow, to, to, to gain content, to gain expertise in a bigger picture. And then there's a very practical way. For example, I'm in Afghanistan and the counterpart that I'm meeting with is General Nasib, who's the chief of chaplains for the Afghani National Army. And I'm having a great time with him. I'm like, so what's the kind of diversification does the ANA have? Uh, and he's going, oh, we have a very diverse chaplain corps. We have, we have uh, imams and, and mullahs and uh, muftis. I'm like, oh, oh okay, I get it. Um, a little different than my tradition. What, what, kind of, what kind of authority do you have as a chaplain in the army? He's like, oh, it's remarkable. It really is because of the value of chaplains, the value of clergy in that culture that um, when the commanding officer says to the troops, take the hill, the troops look at the, the chaplain and go, thumbs up or thumbs down. Are we going to take the hill or not? Uh, that is not like the U.S. military system at all. So, yeah, there's traditions which I think uh, chaplains learn from, cultures that they need to, chaplains need to learn from and, and, and not abuse, but also uh, oftentimes the one trusted person in a U.S. military unit was the chaplain. So if there was a village, um, you know, and there was uh, a fob and there was a chaplain that the chaplain could have communication with the local clergy. So if there were uh, care packages or something for distribution, that would be a bridge mm. that was not to be, that was, that was not to be burned. You know, you had connection with the community there by the chaplain. Closer into the tent, um, you talk about the diversification you know, when I was with Marines going into combat, I would have a Marine come to me and, and ask me to bless his St. Christopher medal. And in my tradition, I mm-hmm. don't have a blessing for a St. Christopher medal. So do I tell him, hey, look, uh, we don't we don't bless St. Christopher medals. Or do I say, um, hey, in my tradition, I, I don't know the exact way that you would want it done but I would like to hold that medal in my hands and offer a prayer for the wearer of this medal in combat to, to be courageous and to live through this experience that, that he's about to go through. And that's what I did. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure to this day the prayer for the St. Christopher medal blessing, but I do know that that Marine left me uh, in a good place and I did the best I could with what I had. That's all. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. And and then and is that something that you guys go through? Like, do you have almost like a war gaming process uh, at chaplain school, much in the same way as like you know they have the Range Four Hundred series, for example, out at uh, Twenty Nine Palms? Is there something similar to that for chaplains? They have a sort of do they run vignettes and scenarios that put you give chaplains sort of that experience? We try, but there's so many. Like the chaplains who go through the training, a basic course, go into the field. Um, we, they have scenarios and role plays as they go th- through the class. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a specifically Christian one uh, for your audience just for a moment. But there was a, uh, the, 
in the tradition in the tradition of the Christian Church, there's there's in baptism, there's a Trinitarian baptism called in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then there's another baptism, which is in Jesus' name only baptism. And these two, uh, you know, I don't know the percentages of Christianity that would say one is valid and one isn't is the other, but I know in my faith tradition, in my faith tradition, the Trinitarian formula in baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is, is the way that, that I'm approved to do it. So I had a Marine come to me saying, hey, my baptism is no good. I need you to rebaptize me on this eve of combat. I got to go out there. I could get killed and I don't want to go in the wrong place. So baptize me right now, chaplain. And I'm like, okay, well, um, you know, I baptize. How do you baptize? I asked. And he said, I need it. I was already baptized in the Trinitarian formula. Baptize me in Jesus name, because I know that's really the, the right one. And I'm like, why? Well, I, I don't, I don't do that. That's not, that's not what I can do. But, um, there's another chaplain over here. Let me ask this chaplain. So I went over and asked that chaplain and he's like, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over that. So that's how we try to use this term, uh, cooperation without compromise. Mm, mm. I think that that's probably a good example of that cooperation without compromise. I don't think the Marine was offended by me. Um, I wasn't in the place to, to like try to have a theological conversation with the Marine. I really wanted to meet the Marines accommodation needs, but I had to do it in a, in a facilitation way instead of actually providing that, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. It seems so intuitive, but yet challenging at the same time. I can, I can definitely, uh, see where, um, yeah, without sort of, without the right mindset, someone may be like, well, hey, let me tell you about how, why you're wrong. <laughs> um, vice, hey, let me let me find out how I can help you first, and then maybe we can have a talk about this thing later. Um, so that's really great. Um, and so, sir, with, through all your experiences then, especially as we in the Marine Corps, you know, in this sort of transitional period now where we're coming out of those irregular warfare, asymmetric warfare, the... Um, you know, contingency operation mindset, and we're getting back into what, when I was in called core competencies, and we're, you know, looking at this peer threat stuff. So we're going into this idea of, we're going back on ship, essentially. We want to get back into our amphibious roots, and we're looking at all these things. What can you tell us, tell the listeners, tell us about what it's like for a greenside chaplain to then get on ship and then have to do you have to adjust to a new command structure? Are you now answering to two bosses? Uh, does the ship's chaplain, I guess, would have seniority potentially? So then what does that mean then for the unit chaplain? Can you sort of explain some of, as we're talking about overlays and organizations, it seems like that would end up being sort of the trifecta that a, cha- a Marine chaplain would have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the scuttlebutt listeners, I would say that at this point in time with the transition of the Marine Corps uh, back to onboard ship, classic, classic uh, expeditionary warfare focus, the spiritual side of a Marine, of a sailor remains uh, asymmetrical problems. (laughs) You you can't, you cannot uh, stovepipe what's going to happen in life into... Uh, you know, what, what into a front there's, there's going to, you're going to get flanked 
You're going to get flanked. You're going to get uh, continually flanked with this asymmetrical spiritual warfare. Um, and it can come from problems from home. It can come from problems in your unit. It can come from problems in your brain. You know, you've got that thousand mile drive in the Humvee from the brain to the heart. And so often that is impossible to bridge unless you start using language that talks about spirit or soul. And so the chaplain can help connect those two. Uh, there's uh, tons of research done in different um, clinical books and theological books about the character of who we are as humans. And no matter what circumstances and no matter what epoch of time we're living in, the problems pretty much remain the same. They, they're historical. You know, if, if I go into the book I use called the Bible, I can pull out quotes in the Bible from 2000 years before the common era that you would go, oh, that's not today. <laughs> because humans and our human nature um, has largely stayed the same, right? We have, um, we have fears, we have uh, this angers and sense of loss, and we uh, look for ways to fulfill those, sometimes uh, using uh, really healthy habits and really healthy appetites, and other times unhealthy habits and unhealthy appetites. And I think um, I, I had a sailor come to me, a good guy. I really, you know, he's a member of the chapel community, comes in after a night on the town and he says, you know, chaplain, I, I just need to tell you, I committed adultery last night and I feel terrible. And I just said to him, I said, that's probably a good sign that you're feeling terrible. The more terrible you feel, the healthier you could possibly be on the back end of this because you're telling me as he did that he wanted his marriage to survive. And so um, sometimes the chaplain doesn't uh, comfort. Sometimes the chaplain continues to inflict because that's the healthiest thing that that sailor or Marine can have happen to him. And mm. so um, I'm thinking of the image of somebody who isn't a great swimmer, but isn't going to drown who gets thrown in the water and is splashing around and the life preservers there and the Sergeant major standing there going, swim, swim, swim. I got this, but I'm not going to throw it to you. And pretty soon, you know, there's a little more calmness there and the confidence rises. And I do believe that that sailor, I don't know how his marriage ended up, but I do believe that through the pain, not only the pains that we get on the battlefield physically, but the pain that we have in this asymmetrical warfare spiritually help us to grow into better people. And so, you know, there's, there are people who would say, um, once you commit some violation, you could never be the person you were. And I'm the person who says, we all commit those violations. You know, we're, we are all uh, vulnerable and we've all taken the bite out of that apple at some point. And so let's see how we can together, whether it's on a deployment, whether it's on a MU, whether it's even in CONUS, uh, how do we support each other and 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 help each other? Because I, I, when I help you, I'm helping myself too. By the way, Vic, I, I I'm I'm a better human for talking to you. <laughs> well, I, I, I totally believe this. 
every, yeah, this is... every sailor, every Marine I get to talk to every time there's that exchange of relationship and the empowerment through words of each other, whether they're admonishment or whether they're encouragement or both, I'm a better human being. I don't want, that's a sacred time, if that makes sense. Absolutely, sir. And, and yeah, I mean, community, connection, camaraderie, you know, all the great uh, words that we use. I mean, I think it captures that sense of, like you said, sir, uh, the the rifle rifleman on the right and the left, that's the most important thing. And then for the chaplain then to be that sort of uh, that that glue that binds um, through the ups and the, it's real easy for a command and not just the commander, but the command in general to uh, rally around success. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's not life. Um, and so, um, well, so this has been extremely uh, enriching for me. I do have one question that I, I know you've been extremely generous with your time. So I thank you for that, sir. But I do have one question for you. Uh, we like to finish out all of our interviews this way, but especially with your diversity of your experiences. Do you have a favorite day in the Navy Marine Corps team? Sure. Well, I have. I'll start with my worst day, and I'll end with my favorite day. And they both they're both very coincidental. My my worst day was my day of enlistment, my oath of office, uh, as a plebe, because I had really no idea what I was getting into. And I remember our first meal after I did the oath was to go in and they fed us submarine sandwiches because it's a Navy idea. Yeah, yeah. And, they gave, and, and they gave us, uh, we could only take three chews and then we had to swallow that food. Whatever it was, whatever you had, we had three chews and a swallow. That was all we were allowed. And uh, I was thinking, oh, I am in so much the wrong place. There is. <laughs> a thousand better places and I've made a terrible mistake. That was my worst day. Um, Remember, I'm the guy who came in there, looked around, didn't like it and stayed. My best day was my second commission as a chaplain because I sensed that that was the place where I was to serve best as uh, a supporter, as a spiritual advisor, as a command advisor, as a chaplain. And I strove through, I resigned my commission to be a chaplain. The Navy said, we may not need chaplains in three years. There is no guarantee we will ever take you back. And I did everything in seminary focused on chaplaincy. I studied uh, all the paperwork, all the paperwork I did was on developing, uh, you know, studies, spiritual studies in a battalion or in a, in a division, in a ship or whatever. Uh, and came back, uh, finished seminary, and the Navy ended up hiring me back and commissioning me. And I knew that that was such a fulfillment to now be uh, a chaplain. And all the it, all the aspirational desires I had. Um, and you know, as I look in the rearview mirror, there was uh, there was some, uh, you know. Um, there was some thought that I really didn't know the full picture of what being a chaplain was. I think there probably was uh, some some ignorance, if that makes sense, uh, which I gained through the school of going through chaplain school and then going to my ship. For example, I'll finish with this. Um, I'm, I'm on my first ship and 
they have a senior chaplain on the ship just to, I'm crossing the pond. I'm going across the Atlantic on a cruiser, 430 sailors, myself as the ship chaplain, and then the squadron chaplain to mentor me along the way. And so I'm frustrated because I don't have an office. I don't have a place to meet sailors. I don't have this place that I've been trained in seminary to talk to sailors, a private place. So I go to this senior chaplain and I start puling and crying and moaning and bemoaning the fact that I don't have a place to meet sailors. And he simply looks at me and he points to his size 12 boot and he says, this is my office. <laughs> what I heard was get over it, <laughs> get over it and become the chaplain that you can be. And so, yeah, the best day was being commissioned as a chaplain. And I loved, I loved my opportunity in the military to do that. So for all of you uh, listeners at Scuttlebutt, I'll just say, get to know your chaplain, reach out to that person because they are a, a resource for you and they can bring you not only knowledge, but relationships that are within their range that can support you as a leader, as a follower, uh, is just an interesting inquirer. And I'm grateful for this time together. Thanks. Thanks so much, Vic. Yeah, so this has been fantastic. This is so great. Um, and as you know, sir, we're running this, uh, running your, this interview as part of our four chaplain series. Um, and so it'll be airing in the month of February. Uh, February 3rd is uh, four chaplains day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, sir, this is amazing. Uh, and, and your love of service is evident in your career. And thank you on behalf of all of us Marines, former and active, um, you know, for your service as the 16th chaplain of the Marine Corps. Um, for all of our listeners, please, regardless of whether you're in uh, or not, read Foundations of Chaplaincy, a practical guide. Uh, and for any commanders, executive officers, chiefs of staff still in uniform, this should be required reading. Absolutely. But sir, thank you so much for your time and best of luck to you and all you do. And, and maybe we'll, you know, we'll look to get you back on uh, at some other, at some other moment. Thanks, Vic. Thanks for your time. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck Magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.